As promised, the top of the program, we're now going to go, uh, well, semi-live to uh, the general vicinity of Hollywood to speak with comedic legend and one of our favorite guests, Mr. Philip Proctor. We're happy to be able to say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Phil Proctor. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. Yes, it has. Our lives have still been running in a strange kind of parallax because we're still entertaining people. Well, we're trying. Yeah, we try, <laughs> and, and I like the fact that you said, what did you say, uh, we're back almost live? <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of the way I feel today. I just closed uh, a show, um, The Crucible, by Arthur Miller. Yes, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. It's down here at our theater company, the Antius Company, Antius Come See Us. Uh, it's a terrible name for a theater company, but we're a, a, a renowned and award-winning classical theater company in North Hollywood. Been here for like 15 years. Started in alliance with the Mark Taper Forum, very prestigious center theater group downtown. And uh, because of the various policies that our theater espouses, like double casting, double casting, double casting, it became difficult for an organized a legitimate theater company like uh, the, the Mark Taper to pay everybody the, the monies that were required by an equity contract. So we spun off and, and basically took over a theater of our own and have been producing for all oh, for you know about 15 20 years we're now sharing a space with the Deaf West company which is a very nice little marquee theater on Lancashire uh -huh. and uh, we we do all kinds of wonderful work but this last production the crucible in which i got to play uh, the incredible uh, crusty old farmer Giles Corey okay. who was famous you know for having said as they were pressing him to death and trying to get a confession from him that he was a warlock more weight which were his last <laughs> words before they crushed him to death. He, by the way, he's he's the comic spirit of the show. He's the comic relief of the show. Yikes. Yeah, I know. But but by gosh, if there was a laugh there, I found it, and the audience appreciated it. Uh, but anyway, we got the most incredible reviews that I think our company has, has gotten. Well, good and on you. Uh, and you know, a lot of you you have a, you talk about this, and I do want to plug your website, Planet Proctor, where you talk about that and a lot of other things. You've been doing it for 13 years, and you ought to uh, yeah. mention where people can go to find that. If you're in the Los Angeles area, all you have to do is is uh, Google Antius. Dot com a n t a e u s and he was a Greek titan who, as long as he kept one foot on the ground, was immortal. Oh. And we keep our foot grounded in the classics. Okay, there's the the. I think that's probably what attracted me to the company because it was such an arcane reference. And as yes. a member of the Firesign Theater, I've been living and breathing the arcane <laughs> for almost fifty years. You know what I mean? Yes. So I yes. Said, this is the place for me. Nobody will find me here. <laughs> yes, I've been following you for a significant amount of those 50 years, I, I, would, I would note, uh, Phil. You sound much too young to have followed me for 50 years. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd be surprised. I'm glad you did The Crucible. Um, our high school did that production. I remember walking across yep. the lawn, and this very distinguished gentleman was walking a, the opposite direction toward the, where the play was being put on, and I looked over and thought, my God, that's, that's Arthur Miller. And it was. He came to the school just to pay a courtesy visit to the production, which I thought was very cool. Isn't that terrific? Well, you know, uh, it, it, I, I just immediately thought of Marilyn Monroe's attraction to him because of his connection with academia. Yeah. Okay? And it was not fake. Uh, in fact, 
when he wrote The Crucible, he, he researched it in, in uh, college, and he wrote a paper on it. Oh. He was so fascinated and appalled by what had happened during the Salem witch trials in the late uh, 17th century uh, that he, he wrote a paper about it. And it wasn't until later on that he picked it up and decided that this might be you know, uh, worthwhile to, to translate into a, a dramatic play. And it so happened that it coincided with the McCarthy hearings. Yes. Right? And he'd yes. also been through the horror of the blacklisting and mm -hmm. the communist witch hunt in general in Hollywood. So the timing was absolutely perfect for the play. And, you know, what's really remarkable about it is that it, is, it speaks to us as forcefully now as it did then. And as forcefully, uh, uh, the subject is as forceful as it ever was. We did not do a, uh, a pointy-hatted pilgrim, you know, <laughs> buckles on your shoes type of production. We did a, a very c a clean, down-and-dirty actors present the crucible. Has your run finished, okay. did you say? Yeah, the run just finished oh, on rats. Friday night. Rats. Uh, Saturday night for me, rather. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed it. Well, Phil, I hope I can get down to that neck of the woods and catch you on stage again. I, I first uh, crossed your paths when you were doing a production, a tribute to Norman Corwin on his 95th birthday. From that, uh, oh, yeah. we were able to have you on the show. We were able to have Mr. Corwin on the show. And, uh, and, and I also need to update a thanks to you for getting us Norman Lloyd. You appeared um, on uh -huh. stage uh, in the role played by Groucho Marx in the original production of Corwin's The Undecided Molecule, you, you had that role this time and with, with, with right. Norman Lloyd on stage, and that was just marvelous. Thank you for it that. It was fun, and, and Norman Corwin insisted that I wore a, uh, a judge's robe <laughs> for that part, <laughs> which, which added fun to it as well. Yeah, he was a, a magnificent man, a brilliant man right up to the end. Uh, and, you know, he died at 101. Yes. Which is pretty good to go for. And, and he really had his faculties, not, not his facilities. He was losing his sight and his hearing, yeah. and he couldn't walk, and he couldn't, you know. But, he, but his brain was as sharp as ever, and that was so amazing. So we were able to go visit him in his apartment, spend time with him, uh, you know, almost right up to the end. And I was so honored to be able to per uh, perform and appear in so many of his uh, productions, uh, both old and new, and to actually be directed by the great man himself. Because he was, for those who don't know it, the, uh, known as the poet of the golden age of radio. And if you do a little Googling, and you Google Norman Corwin, you will be quite astonished at the, uh, the breadth and length of his incredible career and the, the enormous strength of his writing. He was very inspirational to the Firesign Theater as well, because he, was, he wrote about social and cultural themes, mm -hmm. right? And, and he did it poetically, and he did it dramatically with great fervor and, and great uh, imagination. And we in, were inspired by him, and that's where, in our, our first record, The American Pageant comes from. I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was born an American, and I'll die an Armenian <laughs> in whatever it is, whatever crazy thing we did. But that was inspired by uh, Norman Corwin, one of his, his uh, uh, patriotic radio pieces. Hey, let me ask you something I've meaning to ask you for a long time. Every time I'm driving to Marin County and I see the San Anselmo e exit, I laugh thinking of your line about the San Anselmo pederasty case. Where'd you guys come up with that? Uh, I came out to California in 1965, I think it was, with a playing the role of the ingenue in a mu an award-winning musical called The Amorous Flea, which we had uh, uh, done in New York at the York Playhouse. And I and my co-star, Imelda DeMartin, won uh, 
uh, Theater World Awards for it, and it was a very, very well-received and very funny and well-written uh, musical comedy, uh, which we performed off-Broadway. So we brought it out to a little theater called the Las Palmas Theater in Hollywood. The producers did. And when I came out here with it, I was a stranger in a strange land. I, I had never been to California before, certainly not to Los Angeles, uh, which it really, for me, was Los Angeles. I grew up, like, you know, in Goshen, Indiana, on a bike, and in uh, Manhattan, on a bus and, and a subway, and on foot. And I didn't know how to drive, you know, and in taxis. I didn't know how to drive. So in Los Angeles, if you move the letters around, it spells legs on sale, right? <laughs> you have to have a car. And I didn't have a car. So I, w I w just learned how to drive. I had just moved into an apartment of my own up near the Hollywood sign, overlooking Hollywood. I could actually see the ocean from my, my new apartment, and I was settling in for a comfortable run uh, in the Amherst Flea and pursuing a career in television and film. When the phone rang, and it was my agent saying, Phil, you've been cast in a Broadway musical called A Time for Singing, and they want you back there next week for the first read-through and sing-through. I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, of course, I was 20, what, six years old or something. I didn't know how to handle any of that. But my agent handled it for me. They didn't even have an understudy for me out here in L.A. So it was, it was tricky and difficult and emotionally wrenching for me. But I did manage to go back and uh, do this Alexander H. Cohn-produced musical uh, directed by Gerald Friedman with music by uh, John Morris. Uh, based on uh, a musical called, as I said, uh, Time for Singing, based on uh, Richard Llewellyn's um, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, uh, How Green Was My Valley, oh. okay, which later became a, an, a, a film which won eight Academy Awards and was the story of uh, a Welsh mining disaster. Beat out Citizen Kane that year. I did another show called A Race of Hairy Men where I, uh, by Evan Hunter where I understudied Brandon DeWilda. And Brandon and I became the closest of friends. The boy, the boy from Shane. The boy from Shane, yeah. right? Who, who also uh, uh, was on Broadway with Mrs. McThing. Uh, I've been asked. I was a child actor, and I started on live television when I was nine years old in New York on WPIX TV on a show called Uncle Danny Reads the Funnies, <laughs> which uh, Elliot Gould was also on. Oh. And we would, we were, you know, young people who could improvise with Danny, the the star of the show, and and read, uh, read the Daily News comic strips live on the air. Many years later, uh, I end up now going, becoming Brandon's best friend and driving out to Hollywood with him because he wanted to uh, kind of resuscitate his career on screen at the same time as he was building a career as a singer and guitar player. And he was very, very good and very talented at it. So I was meeting people like uh, uh, the Rolling Stones and... Uh, uh, the, the uh, International Submarine Band. Uh, oh, yeah, and we connected up with Peter Fonda. I can't remember exactly how, but Peter Fonda and Brandon and I were hanging out uh, in, in Hollywood. Peter Fonda was working on a little movie idea he called Captain America, which was going to be a trip across America yeah. uh, exposing you know, the youth culture. He couldn't get the rights from Marvel Comics for the character Captain America, huh. who has finally you know, reached the big screen. So he changed the title of the movie to... Easy Rider. Yeah. Okay? So he's doing research for that. And it so happened that there was a protest on the Sunset Strip uh, against a curfew that they were trying to impose on young people 
because at that time the youth revolution was bubbling under and it was making the the gray hairs very very nervous mm-hmm. this was mind you during the vietnamese war and basically the youth were protesting the draft and protesting the war okay and protesting the nixon administration etc etc so we went out to participate in a demonstration on the sunset strip on the first night that the curfew was supposed to be imposed and of course the police on one side of, Sun- of sunset boulevard and the sheriffs on the other side of sunset boulevard started a pincer movement to push all of us together in a big mob in the middle and create a riot and then they waded into the crowd with their billy clubs started beating Jeez. everybody up brandon got beaten up peter fonda got arrested and i was also writing at that time for the east village other which is an underground newspaper back in new york and i held up my press card and said press press and they flowed around me like like a hot knife through butter (laughs) and i was fine but during that demonstration i sat down we had like a sit down nobody move i sat down on an open issue of the la free press i pulled it out from under my butt and I had sat down on a picture of Peter Bergman. It said, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning Vietnam War veterans. And I went, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman. I had met Peter Bergman at Yale in 1958. Wow. When, uh, when he, and he later cast, I got later cast in two musicals written by the great Austin Pendleton that Peter wrote the lyrics for, Tom Jones and Booth is Back in Town about Edwin Booth and his father, Junius Booth, and John Wilkes, and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. And that's where Peter and I became friends. So at this point, I call him up the next day, and he says, Oh, yeah, I'm the Wizard of Oz on Radio Free Oz on this listener-supported station. Come on down. I'm on every night from like 12 to 4 in the morning. So I go down there that night. I start improvising with him, and I meet these two other guys, Phil Austin and David Osman, who were also associated with the station. And we started improvising together, and we discovered that not only could we improvise well together, comedy or anything, but we were also all fire signs. I'm a Leo, (laughs) Phil's an Aries, Uh and Peter and David uh, are Sagittarians. So Bergman got this sudden inspiration that we would become the fire sign theater and would be the Beatles of comedy. That's what he called us. <laughs> well, and it, you... it wasn't long thereafter that we got our first record contract and, and did the record Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. Well, Phil, before we go, i got to ask you about some work you've been doing out on Hollywood Boulevard. A publicist contacted us up some time back and talked about the fact that you and some other folks were putting some productions on there of some of the early writings, I guess, of L. L. Ron Hubbard, but actually when he did some uh, a lot of the pulp fiction work back in the 30s and 40s. Absolutely. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to do, like, scores of voices for, uh, L. Ron, for about 80 of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, wonderful stories that he wrote in the heyday of pulp fiction in all these different genres. Science fiction, which is how I got to know his writings, actually. Uh, Westerns and spy stories and war stories and aviation stories and pirate stories. And they, we recorded 80 of them, and they're releasing them in little batches. Okay. You can go to uh, goldenagestories.com and, and, uh, and get them, and you'll see. I'm, I'm in every batch, I'm in at least three or four stories. And, yes, we do uh, pr- uh, produce them live, uh, on stage at the L. Ron Hubbard Theater in Hollywood. Yeah. And what I love about these stories is they're like the Firesign Theater productions. <laughs> 
They're totally produced with original music and foley and sound effects uh-huh. and wonderful actors and a narration to go along with it. So I highly recommend it. Just quickly, the other things I've been doing, I've been working on two of the upcoming Pixar movies, The Good Dinosaur and uh, Inside Out. I worked on the latest Muppets movie, Muppet, Muppets Most Wanted, and I did some more voices for Final Fantasy XIII. Uh, you know, I, I played Dr. Vidic on the, uh, the very uh, famous Assassin's Creed games. And so I'm still, I'm still out there working and throwing my voice at things. And occasionally I tour in a wonderful reading of Don Quixote with the L.A. Guitar Quartet. And if you go to their site, you can get a DVD of a performance we did in St. Louis of uh, my reading of Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. So I, at, at my, and I turned 73 on July 28th. So it's astonishing to me that I'm still doing all this stuff. And it's probably because I'm doing all this stuff that I'm going to be turning 73 on July 28th. Well, I'm right behind you. Congratulations. Uh, You are behind me, and I appreciate it. Uh, Before we go, I just want to cite the fact the current issue of Planet Proctor has got a wonderful photo of you with uh, the recently departed Gene Stapleton. I guess in one of the early episodes of of Archie Bunker, you played Archie's nephew. All in the family. Yep, I played it, and the insurance is canceled. Yeah, I've, I've had a fun career, and it's continuing, and I, I couldn't be happier. Go to www.planetproctor.com and have some fun. All righty. Phil Proctor, always a pleasure, sir. Let's have you back on soon. Let's do it, Doug. Great to catch up with you. All righty. Bye for now. Okay. That about wraps it up. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And yeah, I know. We forgot to do a joke in today's program. We'll have two on next week's show. All right. We'll see you next week at the same time. 